The president writes a sternly worded letter to oil companies. That'll do the trick. Complete starts right now. President Biden tells gas and oil companies to cut the soaring profits or else. This as the Fed announces an historic rate hike, which will cause Americans to pay more for houses and cars and credit card bills. And the committee investigating the January 6th insurrection releases new footage from the day before the attack of a Capitol Hill tour led by a Republican congressman all in on the big lie. And one of his guests in the video is seen taking photographs of stairwells and hallways and tunnels and security screening posts. Hmm. Then the invasion in Ukraine hits home for some U.S. families as two Americans go missing while fighting alongside Ukrainian soldiers. The growing fear that these two Americans might now be in the hands of the Russians. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our money lead and major economic news that will, in the short term at least, make life more expensive for many Americans. The Federal Reserve this afternoon doing something it has not done in nearly three decades. They raised the interest rate by three quarters of a percentage point. This will mean higher costs for mortgage loans and credit card bills and auto loans and student loans. Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell says the hike is necessary to cool economic growth so as to get inflation under control. But that could take weeks, if not months. And so many American families are struggling right now with skyrocketing inflation costs, including record high gas prices. On that subject, President Biden today sent a new letter to major oil companies, urging them to ramp up supply in hopes of lowering prices for drivers. And as seen as Caitlin Collins reports, President Biden warned he's looking at using his emergency powers if those companies do not act. They need to increase supply. With no relief in sight for higher gas prices, the Biden administration is ramping up the pressure on big oil. We're asking them to be in this era where we're on a war footing to consider increasing supply. In a new letter, President Biden is demanding to know why refineries aren't putting more oil on the market and warning he's prepared to use his emergency authorities to increase output. Biden accusing companies of taking advantage of the crisis, writing that at a time of war, refinery profit margins well above normal being passed directly onto American families are not acceptable. One top U.S. oil producer group, the American Petroleum Institute, is firing back saying that Biden's, quote, misguided policy agenda shifting away from domestic oil and natural gas has compounded inflationary pressures and made things worse. The president is upping his criticism of oil companies after watching his approval ratings sink as gas prices have continued to rise. Exxon made more money than God this year. White House aides say bringing down prices is their top priority, but concede there's little the president can do in the near term. The biggest tool he has, of course, is the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And he is releasing one million barrels per day, but it's not enough to account for the amount of oil that has been pulled offline due to the invasion of Ukraine. Biden is also coming under fire from fellow Democrats after announcing he's going to oil-rich Saudi Arabia, despite vowing to make the country a pariah after the crown prince authorized the grisly murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. I wouldn't go. I wouldn't shake his hand. I want nothing to do with him. This goes to show you how, you know, the, the need for fossil fuels so distorts our foreign policy and causes us to act Uh, in ways not consistent uh, with our values. 
Other Democrats saying they have no concerns about Biden's Saudi sit-down. This president, unlike the previous president, is not afraid to talk tough with uh, foreign leaders. So I have every confidence that, Senate, uh, that President Biden will handle this very well. Now, Dick, when the White House was asked why not have President Biden go to Saudi Arabia but not meet with the crown prince, given he won't even speak to him on the phone right now, they cited the fact that he is on the king's leadership team and needs to be in the room for those meetings. I should note the energy secretary said earlier on CNN that the U.S. has gotten no commitments from so far from the Saudis to ramp up oil production ahead of that meeting with President Biden next month. Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN's Matt Egan. He's at the Federal Reserve in Washington, D.C. right now. And Matt, how quickly does the Fed think this massive hike can, can actually work to lower inflation. Well, Jake, the Fed delivered a powerful statement today, declaring that they're not going to stand for inflation getting hotter and hotter. Chairman Jerome Powell, he flat out said, we have to restore price stability. It is the bedrock of the economy. Now, prices are anything but stable right now, of course. Consumer prices rising at the fastest pace in 40 years. The good news is that after being late to inflation, the Fed is on the case now, moving pretty aggressively to try to get it under control. I think the bad news is that the Fed actually revised higher its inflation projections, projecting 5% inflation by the end of this year. They don't see inflation getting back towards the 2% goal until the end of 2024. And this is not going to be easy because the Fed has a lot of power. They have the ability to really cool off demand by raising borrowing costs on mortgages and credit cards and student debt, car loans. And we're seeing that play out in the housing market where mortgage demand has fallen sharply. But the Fed does not have tools to really control supply the supply chain bottlenecks that are jacking up uh, food prices and gasoline prices and used cars. And Chairman Jerome Powell, he conceded today that the war in Ukraine plus COVID lockdowns in China do have the ability to potentially keep inflation hotter for longer, Jake. If they're in uh, revising their inflation projections upward, what about possible further interest rate hikes? Did Chairman Powell talk about that at all? Yeah, absolutely. He strongly signaled that there's going to be further rate increases. Now, he said that the move today, this three quarters of a percentage point, he, he called that unusually large and said that's probably not going to be the common step from the Fed. But he did say that in the next meeting in July that they are probably going to be debating between either a move this size or one just smaller, a half a percentage point. And Fed officials, they projected sharply higher interest rates by the end of the year. They say that they think that interest rates are going to be about twice as high at the end of the year as they are today. Now, this is a tricky situation for the Fed, right? Because if they don't do enough, which arguably has been the case to this point, that inflation can get hotter and hotter and go out of control. But, Jake, if they do too much, they could end up slowing the economy right into a recession. Yep, that's the risk. Matt Egan at the Fed. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Turning to our world lead now, two American fighters are now feared to be prisoners of war, possibly in the hands of the Russians. The two volunteer fighters from Alabama went missing during a battle just north of Kharkiv last week. They have not been heard from since. They are 27-year-old Andy Ty Naquin and 29-year-old Alexander John Robert Druka. Uh, a fellow fighter tells CNN that battle that they were lost in was, quote, absolute chaos. Let's bring in CNN's Ben Wiedemann. He's on the ground in the eastern Ukrainian city of Kramatorsk. Ben, uh, what are the families uh, of these two fighters saying about their missing loved ones? 
Well, Alex Druk's mother and Andy Huynh's uh, fiancé both say they last heard from them on the 8th of June when they told them they, they would be unavailable or offline for a few days, uh, presumably that they were going to be going on a mission. And uh, shortly after that combat that their comrade described, as you mentioned, uh, they, they went out to try to find either bodies or, or find them if they were wounded. They found nothing. The following day, a Russian propaganda channel on the Telegram uh, messaging application claimed that two Americans had been captured outside Kharkiv. Now, the U.S. embassy in Ukraine uh, says they have no information if these two men have been captured. A State Department spokesman uh, says that they're monitoring the situation, that they're in contact with Ukrainian authorities, but had no further comment. Now, this incident uh, is worrying because last week, on the 9th of June, a court in the pro-Russian breakaway republic, the Donetsk People's Republic, found two British nationals and one Moroccan national who had been fighting with the Ukrainian army guilty of serving as mercenaries and sentenced them to death. Jake? Yeah, that's a sobering thought. Ben Wiedemann in Ukraine, thank you so much. A tourist taking pictures of hallways and stairwells and tunnels on Capitol Hill. The January 6th committee released video of a hill tour on January 5th, led by a Republican congressman who embraces the big lie. Hmm. Then horrifying admissions we learned today from the alleged Buffalo grocery store shooter as he now faces federal charges that could carry the death penalty. Stay with us. Even you, AOC, we're coming to take you out. Coming to take you out. Stunning new video from the January 6th committee tops our politics lead. In it, you can hear one man just outside the Capitol on January 6th yelling direct threats about lawmakers. What is especially startling about this particular video is that the man you just heard had been given a tour of congressional office buildings by Republican Congressman Barry Loudermilk of Georgia the day before the Capitol attack. The committee also releasing this security footage of the same man on that tour, taking photos of hallways and tunnels that lead to the Capitol. CNN's Ryan Nobles is on Capitol Hill with how this new video directly contradicts finding issued by the U.S. Capitol Police. There's no escape, Pelosi. Schumer. New video released by the January 6th Select Committee showing a man outside the Capitol directing threats at Democratic members of Congress. Pelosi, Nadler, Schumer, even you, AOC, we're coming to take you out. We'll pull you out by your hairs. That same man, seen the day before on a tour of the Capitol complex with Republican Congressman Barry Loudermilk, snapping pictures the committee believes are suspicious. Chairman Benny Thompson writing to Loudermilk, quote, Individuals on the tour photographed and recorded areas of the complex not typically of interest to tourists, including hallways, staircases, and security checkpoints. The committee re-upping its concerns after Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger said earlier this week, we do not consider any of the activities we observed as suspicious. Loudermilk has refused to meet with the committee, claiming their inquiry has led to death threats against his family. The committee's never called me and asked me anything. They sent they a letter asking for your cooperation. Do you regret giving that tour now? Well, say I, never, I, I condemn that type of activities. 
The committee continues to push ahead to their hearing on Thursday night. I said to him, are you out of your effing mind? Out with this deposition from Trump White House lawyer Eric Hirschman, warning John Eastman the day after January 6th to drop efforts to try to overturn the 2020 vote. The Trump ally had also tried to convince then-Vice President Mike Pence to stand in the way of certifying the election results. President Trump had no factual basis for what he was doing, and he had been told it was illegal. Despite this, President Trump plotted with a lawyer named John Eastman and others. A plot Hirschman believed may have put Eastman in legal jeopardy. I said, good, John. Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great effing criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. And then I hung up on him. And in just the last hour, the committee officially announcing who will hear live testimony from tomorrow. And it includes two people closely associated with the former vice president, including his chief counsel, Greg Jacob, and Judge Michael Ludig, who encouraged the vice president to not take the advice of John Eastman. And we are also learning that tomorrow's hearing will be led by Congressman Pete Aguilar of California, who's, of course, a member of the committee. Jake. All right. Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Here to discuss CNN special correspondent Jamie Gangel and George Conway. He's a conservative lawyer and a contributing columnist for The Washington Post. Jamie, let me let me start with this clear contradiction. The January 6th committee wrote a letter to, to Congressman Loudermilk right. about this footage. Chairman Benny Thompson says he's asking about the video because the group was taking photos and recording areas of the complex that are, quote, not typically of interest to tourists, including hallways and staircases and security checkpoints. I've, you know, been on Capitol Hill for, for decades, and you don't see pe- people taking pictures of staircases. And so, uh, he also noted the group stayed for, quote, several hours. But U.S. Capitol Police said in a letter on Monday that they, quote, did not consider any of the activities observed as suspicious. That seems interesting, that contradiction. So I think there are semantics going on here. We hear about capital complex and capital. I think we have a lot more to learn about what's going on. I also think it's true that two things can be true at the same time. Uh, they may have been doing things that are suspicious that they shouldn't have been doing. And maybe Congressman Loudermilk did not know, realize, ab- absorb it. But uh, I covered Capitol Hill before you guys were born. There is, you never see tour. I mean, it's just ridiculous for tourists to be taking pictures of these stairways, these tunnels. It just doesn't happen. No, there are paintings and there are sculptures. But This is not Statuary Hall. No, it's right. odd. George, take a listen to Congressman Loudermilk talking about the video. This is him earlier today. They're not interested in the truth. They're only interested in creating a, a narrative for you guys. There's nothing there. The Capitol Police looked at it, said there is nothing suspicious because the Capitol Police know. When visitors come, they take pictures. So Loudermilk says there's nothing to the video, but the January 6th committee disagrees. I mean, it'd be a pretty big deal if the January 6th committee was able to prove. I mean, that's a lot what we just saw, but if if they were to prove even more. Yeah, if there's nothing there, then what's the problem? Why not talk to the January 6th committee? Why not answer the questions? There are pretty good questions to ask, which is, what did you think when they were taking pictures of this weird stuff? And not the, not Statuary Hall, but, but, the, but the security ingresses and egresses and the stairways. Did, you, did, it, did, you, did it occur to you? Like, that's odd. And what were they saying about why they were seeing what they were seeing? Did they ask to see these places? What happened? And if, right. there's, if it's all innocent, 
why not just answer those questions? And also, just as somebody who's been on Capitol Hill for, for decades as well, you don't see members of Congress leading a lot of these tours. You see their staffers doing it, their interns do it. To see a member of Congress, usually that's for like a big donor or a friend or a, a, a VIP. We also, uh, Jamie, have video from one of the men who was on that tour with Loudermilk. Take a listen to what he's saying as he walks towards the Capitol on January 6th. There's no escape, Pelosi. Schumer. Nadler. We're coming for you. Even you, AOC. We're coming to take you out. We'll pull you out by your hairs. How about that, Pelosi? Go... Might as well make yourself another appointment. I'll get done with you. You're going to need a shine up on top of that bald head. Jesus. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's horrific. It's violent. We should note that the, the committee says they don't have any evidence that the man did make it into the Capitol. Right. But th- those are some horrific uh, threats. And there's another part of the clip where he's showing that the point to his American flag is sharpened. Like it could be used as kind of a dagger or a spear. I mean, well, that's not just... a metaphor or anything. Um, <laughs> George, uh, tomorrow's the third hearing of the January 6th uh, committee in this round. Uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney released this clip from a taped interview with former White House lawyer Eric Hirschman explaining what he warned uh, Trump allied lawyer John Eastman, who was putting forth this crazy unconstitutional theory about how Pence could be the one that undid the election. Take a listen. I don't want to hear any other effing words coming out of your mouth no matter what. Other than orderly transition, repeat those words to me. And I screamed that he said, eventually he said, orderly transition. I said, good, John. Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great effing criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. And I hung up on him. What was interesting about the release of that clip yesterday was that Liz Cheney released it, Congresswoman Liz Cheney released it, in the midst of this back and forth with the chairman of the committee about whether or not there was going to be a criminal referral. I interpreted, and others did too, as the, I'm not, Liz Cheney thinking, I'm not the only one here who thinks that there are, there are criminal acts Absolutely. committed. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody who worked in the Trump White House counsel's office thought so. I mean, I got to say, I love this guy. This guy is the kind of... <laughs> We're the kind all of, the kind of, you know, I practiced law in New York for 30 years, and he, this was the kind of blunt-spoken New York lawyer I loved yeah. to, talk, to deal with. And he was absolutely right. That was great free legal advice. And it turned out that um, Eastman took it. He pled the fifth 146 times at his deposition before the, before the January 6th committee. Yeah, so, so as to not incriminate himself right. in criminal activity. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, pretty clear that um, everyone, I mean, Hirschman was aware that this was of questionable legality. And Eastman ultimately and his counsel came to that conclusion. That's why he took the fifth. Yeah. And so... We'll see if Merrick Garland is, uh, for, is paying attention. For the record, Jake and I are fighting over who gets that interview, <laughs> along with every other yeah, reporter in Washington. And every network and uh, newspaper. Right. Thanks, one and all, for being here. I appreciate it. He said he had been planning the racist massacre for years. We're learning more about the horrific details from the alleged Buffalo grocery store gunman's j- diaries as he faces new federal charges. Stay with us. In our national lead, new evidence shows that the Buffalo supermarket massacre in which 10 people were brutally murdered was an attack years in the making. Federal authorities say a document found on a laptop in the accused gunman's home is also revealing the extent to which his sick goal was to kill, quote, as many blacks as possible, unquote.
CNN's Bryn Gingrass is live for us at the Tops Market in Buffalo, New York. Bryn, what, are you, what more are you learning about these disturbing new details outlining the suspect's racist and, and radical worldview? His worldview, what he was doing to prepare for this attack after the fact, Jake, so many details in this affidavit that the complaint filed today in the Western District of New York, essentially saying that the 18-year-old shooter had thought about committing this racist act uh, for years and then actually decided to possibly or go through with it uh, earlier this year and did recognizance on the grocery store at the Tops uh, there behind me uh, several months prior, even up to two and a half hours before carrying out this attack, according to the court documents says when in the grocery store uh, did sort of a tally of the race of the people who were inside possible ages where the security guard was located at the time. If you remember, that security guard was one of the victims uh, of the 10 people killed uh, in this attack. And we also have learned that the FBI found a note in his home when they did a search, when they executed a search warrant. And in that note, he apologized to his family members and essentially said that he had to commit this attack for the future of the white race. So, so many disturbing details coming out in this affidavit now facing 26 federal charges uh, related to hate crimes and firearm charges against the 18-year-old shooter, Jake. All right, Bryn Gingrass in Buffalo, New York, thanks so much. And that brings us back to our politics lead. In just moments, the bipartisan group of senators negotiating a gun reform deal will meet again on Capitol Hill as the talks drag on. Senators say they're in danger of missing a self-imposed end-of-the-week deadline due to two big sticking points. And joining us now is Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. He's one of the lead negotiators on the bipartisan talks. He joins us in the midst of the talks. Senator Murphy, thanks so much uh, for talking to us. You're in the midst of another round of bipartisan talks this hour. Uh, Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, who's leading the negotiations for the other side uh, of you, uh, he told CNN today that, that he's starting to get concerned about turning the framework deal into bill text. Take a listen. I think we're, we're on our way. But I am concerned now, given the time it takes and the uh, need to complete our work uh, really by tomorrow, that we got to settle these issues or else we're talking about jeopardizing our ability uh, to deal with legislation next week. Are you worried? Are you concerned this deal could fall apart? Well, I'm not worried. We you know, worked hard to get a framework agreement that uh, 20 Republicans and Democrats agree to. All we have to do is put that into text. I'm not saying that that's a piece of cake, but um, I think that everybody in this room uh, wants to get a bill to the floor by next week. And, you know, well, drafting concepts into text is never easy. I was frankly, uh, you know, somewhat pleased to hear that Senator Cornyn today thought we only had two outstanding issues. We probably have a lot more than two, but all of them can be uh, settled because I think Senator Cornyn thinks what I believe, which is that the American public is not going to accept nothing as an answer. We cannot go back home over the course of July 4th and tell people that once again, we let politics get in the way of of getting something done. So I think we're going to be able to wrap this up and get these final issues settled. Let's talk about uh, the issues that Senator Cornyn identified as the two that need to be ironed out. Um, One of them is incentives for states to pass red flag laws. And I know you've heard many objections uh, many Republicans are objecting to this. And the other one is closing the so-called boyfriend loophole, which would deny the ability to, to, buy, or, to buy firearms to significant others who are, are accused and adjudicated of domestic abuse. Uh, where do you stand on ironing those two? I think 
what I understand Senator Cornyn's worry to be is that you know money will flow to states with red flag laws, but then money will will not flow to states that choose not to adopt red flag laws. I think we can figure that out. I mean, we're going to have plenty of money in this bill for states that choose to adopt red flag laws and states that don't choose to adopt red flag laws. I, I just want to make sure that there's funding there for states that um, need to teach law enforcement and first responders how to use uh, a red flag law. On boyfriend loophole, again, I think we have agreement. You know, you look at the um, the framework we put out and it's pretty clear. We want to make sure that you know, these serious long-term dating partners, when they beat up their girlfriend and get convicted of that crime, um, are prohibited from buying a firearm in the future, as well as those who have a restraining order against them. Um, th that's obviously not a simple thing to work out that text. So it's to be expected that, you know, it would take a few days to be able to land that definition. But we'll get there because I think there's a common understanding of what we want to do. North Dakota Republican Senator Kevin Kramer was asked about red flag measures yesterday. Um, his answers seem to indicate that winning the election in November is more important than efforts at red flag laws. He said, quote, I think we're more interested in red waves than we are in red flags, quite honestly, as Republicans, and we have a good opportunity to do that. What's your reaction? Well, from what I understand, Senator Cornyn presented some polling to his uh, caucus, and including Senator Kramer yesterday, in which he showed that Red flag laws are wildly popular all across the country. I think the data he showed suggested they had 85% support. Um, that means they're popular in red states and in blue states. So, you know, if Republicans are you know, more concerned with winning elections than keeping people safe, and I hope that's not the case, but if they are, um, then they should be very interested in voting for a bill that is going to be very, very popular. Red flag laws, stopping abusers from getting guns, uh, locking up gun traffickers. These are things that are, you know, as popular as grandma and apple pie. So we're going to have a really popular bill on our hands if we get this to the Senate floor, when we get this to the Senate floor. When you talk about more money needing to go to states, even if there's not states uh, that, that have red flag laws or, or are going to have red flag laws, are you saying what I heard Senator Cornyn say earlier, which is uh, that uh, the larger addressing of the mental health crisis in this country is also something to be addressed in this bill, even if it doesn't have to do with keeping guns out of the hands of individuals who are perhaps a threat to themselves or others or in the margins of society, but uh, in an effort to help them regardless. Well, listen, I, you know, I'm always very reluctant to, you know, combine a conversation about mental illness and violence because, you know, people with mental illness are not prone to violence. In fact, they're more likely to be the victims of violence. But you know, it's been clear from the beginning that to get a bill, we needed to package together these common sense changes in gun laws with a very big investment in mental health spending. And why would we say no uh, as Democrats to fixing our broken mental health system? And that's what I'm talking about. Senator Cornyn um, you know, wants to make sure that every state gets a benefit from this bill. And we are absolutely going to make sure that that's the case. In fact, it may be that a lot of rural states, which tend to elect Republicans more often than Democrats, uh, are going to get a very significant boost because we will probably put specific dollars in this bill for telehealth, um, for the kind of mental health care that rural communities often need more than urban communities. So I think there'll be plenty of support in this bill for um, states that are represented by Republicans. I know you need to get back to negotiating. Senator Chris Murphy, thanks so much. Thank you. It is so hot in some parts of the United States, roads are literally melting. That's ahead.
In our politics lead on the heels of the alleged attempted murder of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh by an, by an armed left-wing would-be assassin, as well as multiple protests outside the homes of Supreme Court justices sparked by the leaked Roe v. Wade draft opinion, Senate Republicans are asking Attorney General Merrick Garland why he is not enforcing a law that would essentially ban such picketing. Let's bring in CNN's Manu Raju, live for us in Capitol Hill. Manu, what are lawmakers telling you about this? Well, Republicans are concerned that this law from, 1950s, from the 1950s era has not been enforced, which essentially bans the practice of protesting outside the homes of Supreme Court justices for the purpose of influencing the court system. Now, this all comes on the heels of a debate within Capitol Hill about how far to go in bolstering security for Supreme Court justices. The Senate quickly passed a bill last month that would bolster security for justices and their families. The House Democrats wanted to expand that bill to also include clerks and staff. Ultimately, Republicans balked that expanded bill. House Democrats relented and approved the Senate version. Now, the co-sponsor of that Senate bill, Democrat Chris Coons, I asked him earlier today about the idea of arresting individuals who are protesting outside of the justices' homes, and he indicated that law enforcement has to take a careful approach. As an elected official, I've certainly had enough protests outside my house, and I think that's a critical part of the First Amendment and the ability of Americans to express their um, anger, their discontent, their unhappiness with either elected officials or the judicial branch. Um, But I do think we need to be mindful, uh, given credible recent threats uh, and given a tragic incident that happened uh, in New Jersey. Now, the Justice Department declined to comment on the Senate Republicans' letter today, but did respond last week to Mitch McConnell, who had been raising these concerns for some time, saying that the U.S. Marshal Service has been providing around-the-clock service at all homes of justices. And also, Jake, this law is written broadly. It is rarely enforced, uh, we are told, because it can really can be interpreted to cover a wide range of protests. But nevertheless, Republicans are not satisfied and demanding more answers from the Justice Department. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. The nation's first national park cut off by raging floods, and more water could be on the way. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, all entrances to Yellowstone National Park are still temporarily closed, and the northern section could be cut off for the rest of the season. This week's intense flooding severely damaged roads, making evacuations extremely dangerous. High temperatures expected later this week could cause even more snow to melt into the Yellowstone River. CNN's Nick Watt takes a look now at the unbelievable damage. That is insane. This was a home for park employees obliterated by the Yellowstone River, as was the one and only road in from the north entrance. The oldest national park on Earth is now closed. I've heard this is a thousand-year event. Whatever that means these days, they seem to be happening uh, more and more frequently. This is climate change, an unusually late heavy snowfall, then unusually high temperatures melting that snow, plus a lot of rain, combining to cut off this gem of the American West. More than two million acres, a thousand miles of trails, 500 geysers, bears, birds... As much as three months' worth of water barreled down this valley in three days, breaking record-high river levels set over 100 years ago. Overwhelming infrastructure built for what was normal last century, not 
for the extreme and unpredictable that is becoming normal in this. For the benefit and enjoyment of the people, says the grand old gate, not right now. This northern entrance likely will not open again this summer because that one road in will take months to fix. There's nobody here. Um, there's one um, hotel that's actually shutting down, told all its employees to go home. You were booked. We were booked. And we now were you have one person who's leaving. Year. We were booked for a year. Gardner, gateway to the park, now a ghost town. Probably will be four months. It's a Yellowstone town and it lives and dies by tourism. There should be more than 10,000 people in the park on a summer's day. Today, just a few hikers left in the backcountry. And all this might not be over. There's still 12 inches of snowpack up there and high temperatures are forecast for the weekend. More snow might melt and the Yellowstone River might rise again. And, you know, last year, the U.S. Geological Survey released a report predicting that this would happen, that there would be more snowfall, more snowmelt, more rain. And they are predicting that that will continue in the years to come as well. Now, the North Gate, as I said, is going to be closed for months. They're going to try and open the south of the park maybe next week. Um, they're still trying to figure out logistics on that. But the road up here, that's going to take months. And this, by the way, where I'm standing, this was where that huge house that housed workers in the park, it was here, it's not anymore. So they're gonna have to figure out where park employees will even live. Jake. All right, Nick Watt reporting outside Yellowstone. Thank you so much. Nearly 100 million people from Michigan to Northern Florida are under heat alerts today. Temperatures soared well past 90 degrees, including in Ohio, where the humidity makes it feel as if it's 107 degrees. It's so hot, roads are buckling in St. Louis, Missouri. To make things even worse, hundreds of thousands of people across parts of the Midwest and Ohio River Valley are without power. CNN's Omar Jimenez is in Chicago, where there is an excessive heat warning today. Omar, what are people doing to try to escape the heat there? Yeah, Jake. Well, for starters, we're outside one of multiple cooling centers being offered by the city at a community service location, but they're also pointing people towards its libraries, towards splash pads or fountains, just trying to find some form of relief from this heat. And we just learned from the National Weather Service in the past hour that we have now set the record for heat in Chicago for this day that was originally set back in 1994. And with still hours of heating left to go, officials believe we could very well break those records. Now, earlier today, we spoke with the commissioner for the Department of Family and Support Services, and she told us that last night they placed about 67 individuals into shelter, the night before around 54, and that they're treating this heat no differently, trying to be proactive about getting people the relief that they might need. It's hard to believe that in the past 48 hours, we were dealing with tornado warnings here in this area, and now excessive heat and Chicago in particular knows how deadly and dangerous heat like this can be. You look back to the 90s, one particular heat wave ended with hundreds of people dead due to heat related re reasons and it's because of that that they have made multiple changes to make sure that they never get even close to anything of that magnitude. But of course, it's something that people think about here in the city as well. Jim. All right, Omar Jimenez in Chicago for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, not walking the talk. Why Ukraine's president is calling out a major European nation 
for failing to deliver a single piece of heavy weaponry, despite saying that they would. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead on Jake Tapper. This hour for new moms and dads, it's finally happening. The FDA advisory panel just signed off on COVID vaccines for the youngest children. Now the question is, just how many parents are going to sign up? Plus, two police officers called to a stabbing are shot and killed. Why the mayor says they were essentially ambushed. And leading this hour, two American volunteer fighters have gone missing in Ukraine. And their families fear they've been captured by the Russian army. A source tells CNN that Andy Ty Nock Quinn and Alexander John Robert Drukey, both from Alabama, disappeared during a fierce battle in eastern Ukraine nearly one week ago. Within 24 hours, a post appeared on a Russian propaganda channel on the messaging app Telegram, claiming that the men had been captured near Kharkiv. Drukey's mother tells CNN that the men are presumed to be prisoners of war, but the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine has not been able to verify that claim. CNN's Oren Lieberman joins us now live from Brussels. Caitlin Collins is live for us at the White House. Caitlin, let's start with you. What's the White House saying about these Americans? Well, Jake, they're aware of these reports, but right now the White House can't confirm them. They said they just found out about the reports about these two Americans that have been missing in Ukraine and feared captured, of course, by the Russian forces. And they say that if they can confirm these reports, that they will work to get them home as soon as possible. But John Kirby, a National Security Council spokesman who was at the briefing today, said this is precisely the reason that they have been warning Americans not to go into Ukraine to try to help to volunteer to fight because they do have concerns about something like this happening. And obviously, Jake, as you know, there are no U.S. military on the ground in Ukraine to help with something of this magnitude. And so that is the concern that the White House has. But as far as it comes to confirming these reports, they haven't been able to do so yet or say if President Biden himself has been briefed on it, Jake, though they said they would keep us updated on the status of them. You're traveling with Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, who met today with leaders from nearly 50 nations to discuss Ukraine. The U.S. announced today that the government is sending an additional billion dollars worth of new military aid. What's included in this latest package? So two different parts to this package, Jake. A third of it is coming directly from U.S. Department of Defense inventories. And that, as we've learned over the course of the past 110 days or so, can be shipped in relatively quickly. That includes 18 more howitzers on top of what the U.S. has already sent in, more than 36,000 rounds of artillery ammunition, and ammunition for the HIMARS system. That's the system that was approved earlier this month. Four of those weapon systems, multiple launch rocket systems that can use precision weapons to strike at a far greater range than artillery. That's about a third of the billion dollars. The other two-thirds is what's known as the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, and that will go to, uh, to purchase, uh, through direct contracts with weapons manufacturers, more weapons for Ukraine. That includes two Harpoon coastal defense systems, thousands of night vision goggles, thousands of radios, so that won't be as fast But the U.S.'s position is that the fight in eastern Ukraine is an incremental fight. Russia, yes, is making gains, but there is still time to get these critical systems in. How will we find out and when will we see this? Well, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, said the training on that advanced HIMARS system for the first group wrapped up today. It should enter the fight by the end of the month. So we may know very quickly how fast this is able to make an impact on what has become a brutal fight, especially in eastern Ukraine. Jake? All right, Caitlin Collins and Orrin Lieberman, thanks so much. Appreciate it. The former Russian president sharing a grim prediction for Ukraine's future. Dmitry Medvedev, who currently sits on Russia's Security Council, suggested that Ukraine might not even exist anymore within two years. CNN's Fred Plykin joins us now live from St. Petersburg, Russia. Fred, what does that attitude say 
about Russia's outlook when it comes to the conflict right now. Hi there, Jake. Well, it certainly uh, doesn't seem to appear that the Russians are changing course or even thinking about changing course. In fact, it certainly looks as though they are doubling down. Of course, Jake, the remarks and that post on Telegram on the messaging app by Dmitry Medvedev comes only a couple of days after Vladimir Putin essentially said that to him, this is about Russia taking back land that Vladimir Putin believes is intrinsically Russia's and that he believes that he's very much in the tradition, for instance, of Tsar Peter the Great. Now, I was at the St. Petersburg Economic Forum today and I was at a press conference by the spokeswoman of Russia's foreign ministry uh, and she kept talking about um, America essentially being responsible for what's going on in Ukraine right now from the Russian point of view. And I then confronted her with the fact that even Vladimir Putin says that this is about taking back land for the Russians. And that led to the following confrontation. The president of the Russian Federation on Thursday said, and he likened the special military operation by Russia, the invasion of Ukraine, to the things that Peter the Great did in the Great Northern War and said that Russia was, in his estimation, taking back territory that was rightfully Russia's and strengthening it. Is that not an admission of a severe breach of international law? When will you start using the same tone of voice when you question your own authorities? Why do you use that tone of voice when you question us? Take a look at 2014. We had a referendum. The big question is, take back and strengthen other countries' territories. Is that not a violation of international law? Was there a legal basis to invade Iraq? There. You are invading a sovereign country. You mentioned our invasion and occupation of territories. What territories are you talking about? Well, for instance, the entire region around the Azov Sea, um, the invasion trying to towards, uh, go towards Kiev, where the Russian army was beaten back, large parts of the Luhansk and uh, Donbas, uh, Donetsk oblasts, which were under the control of the Ukrainian military. And then you have the region around Kherson. So are you talking about Donetsk and Luhansk? Maybe you have more information than I have. I don't have this information about Kyiv. The territories of Donetsk and Luhansk are acknowledged as sovereign states. There are referendums, as I said, reflecting the will of the people. If the Russian president says what's going on in Ukraine is taking back land that is intrinsically Russian land and strengthening that land, can you please explain to me what does that mean? Where does it end? And is that not a violation of international law? You say I don't answer your question. You just don't like the way I answer it. I am answering it. Perhaps it clashes with your vision. America said they are exceptional, and we said this concept is wrong. But I can tell you that the U.S. troops are now in Syria. Nobody asked them to come. So there you have the spokeswoman for the Russian foreign ministry. And that was actually just part of the exchange that we had in total that went on uh, for at least 10 minutes, maybe four, uh, maybe more going back and forth. Uh, but certainly the sense uh, that we got and, and that you get uh, on the ground here is that right now at this point in time, uh, the Russians uh, certainly not looking to change course uh, in what they're doing in Ukraine. In fact, the Russians right now are saying they believe that they are making headway. Uh, in uh, in eastern Ukraine, especially in that Donbas region. And, you know, some of the things that we always hear here is that it won't stop until Russia has met all of its military objectives in Ukraine, even though those really aren't fully defined, at least not in public yet, Jake. All right. Strong reporting from Fred Plaitkin reporting live from St. Petersburg, Russia. Also in our world lead, a new study from a Finnish research group shows that Russia made nearly $100 billion, that's billion with a B, from energy exports during the first 100 days 
of its war in Ukraine. The study found that the European Union accounts for 61% of that $100 billion. 61% of it. This raises new questions, not only about the sincerity of European leaders when it comes to ending Putin's war on Ukraine, but also why, for example, Ukrainians continue to complain that Berlin has yet to deliver a single unit of heavy weaponry to Kiev, despite having approved it in April. In the views of the Ukrainian government, the Germans have been a lot of talk. Putin Putin must not win his war, and I am convinced he will not win. And not enough action. This week, President Volodymyr Zelensky issued a rare public rebuke of German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, saying this to one German news outlet. We need Chancellor Scholz to give us certainty that they will support Ukraine. He and his government must choose not to do a balancing act between Ukraine and the Russian Federation but to choose which is their priority. Because while it's true Schultz uses the right words, branding Putin a warmonger and terming the invasion a Zeitenwender, meaning a turning point in the history of German foreign policy, a term not used lightly, some critics feel it's different when it comes to German Chancellor Schultz's deeds. As one German political commentator recently wrote, quote, the chancellor, despite his strong talk at the beginning of the war, has chosen effectively to do Nothing. His indecisiveness is more than a political failure. It amounts to a dangerous weakening of the resolve of those who oppose Russia's war, clearing the way for more brutality and violence. So, critics argue, as Russians stomp violently across Ukraine, Germany has been dragging its boots. Germany's economic might as the European Union's biggest economy makes it a critical player here. But instead of outright banning all oil and gas imports from Russia, Germany has opted to, quote, phase out those shipments, continuing a revenue stream which some critics say helps fund Russian war efforts. And while Germany reacted quickly, vowing to send desperately needed tanks and anti-aircraft systems to the Ukrainian front lines, Schultz's government later backpedaled, declaring that Germany needed to keep the weaponry and that, anyway, Ukrainian soldiers were not sufficiently trained to handle such advanced technology. That's a criticism quickly rejected by Zelensky when I sat down with him in April. I have heard many times from certain states that did not want to give us weapons quickly because our soldiers are not ready, from a technical standpoint, to use them. But instructors of such equipment, our instructors, will get our troops ready to fight in them. When pressed earlier this month, Schultz even made the bizarre and false claim that, quote, nobody supplies on a similar scale as Germany does, unquote, which is not true in any way, not in total dollars, not in percentages. And in the run-up to Russia's invasion, Schultz initially rebuffed international pressure to commit to ending the Nord Stream 2 pipeline a massive project that would funnel lucrative natural gas from Russia to Germany. President Biden said that the pipeline would not happen if Russia invades. You won't say that. How would President Biden stop the pipeline? Just by imposing severe sanctions? And, and, and why won't you explicitly say, Russia, if you invade Ukraine, we're canceling the pipeline? We are doing much more as one step. We are, and all the steps we will take, we will do together. As the president said, we are preparing for that. And you can understand and you can be absolutely sure that Germany will be together with all its allies and especially the United States. Under scrutiny from the U.S. and other NATO allies, though, Schultz did eventually suspend that project 
And he has taken other steps to support Ukraine's efforts, such as a pledge to deliver two major weapons to its army, an air defense system and a tracking radar, in addition to humanitarian and medical aid. After the Russian attack on Ukraine, Germany revised its decades-long position and, for the first time, sent weapons and military goods to a war zone. Domestically, Schultz is juggling pressure from multiple sides of his government, including those who want to do less, not more, for Ukraine. And while many applaud the moves Germany has made under Schultz's leadership, others wish they had come sooner. We need to do everything in order to stop the senseless killing. Simply put, Ukrainians say it is difficult to argue that the German leaders are doing everything they can to stop the senseless killing. And others observe, given Germany's history, one might think and hope that their leaders would feel a special obligation to start doing a lot more. Coming up, an FDA advisory committee just approved COVID vaccines for the youngest children. But is it too late then? Making a statement to the city of Washington, D.C., honoring murdered journalist Jamal Khashoggi by making sure his killers cannot look away from his name. Stay with us. A big step towards vaccines for the youngest children in the U.S. kicks off our Healthy Today. This afternoon, FDA advisors decided to okay both Moderna and Pfizer shots for kids under five. If parents choose Pfizer, that will be a three-dose series. For babies as young as six months, up to kids four years old. If parents prefer Moderna, little ones six months to five years will get a two-dose series of shots. But shots cannot go into little arms just yet. The CDC has to give the final green light. Professor of Emergency Medicine and Associate Dean of Public Health at Brown University, Dr. Megan Ranney, joins us now. Dr. Ranney, thanks for joining. The CDC advisors are going to vote on Saturday. But a CDC estimation that looked at blood samples indicated that more than two in three children under five have already been infected. And that data was collected before the height of the Omicron surge. So I guess my question is, is there the same urgency for parents to still run out to get their little kids vaccinated, given that that study suggests most kids probably already have antibodies? Uh, Jake, this decision on the part of the FDA is, there's no two ways about it, a huge win for parents of little kids across the United States right now. Yes, many kids have been exposed to COVID already, but we know that the durability of those antibodies from natural infection is not strong. And particularly during Omicron, we're finding that folks are getting reinfected. Moreover, these studies occurred during the Omicron wave and they showed that both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine were effective both at preventing many infections, not all, but were really effective at preventing hospitalizations and, God forbid, ICU stays. No parent wants their kid admitted to one of my intensive care units, and these vaccines help avert that. COVID hospitalizations are trending down in most Northeast states, but still ticking up overall. And data shows in the first week of June, hospitalizations for kids under five we're four times higher than those for other children. How effective will the vaccines be for keeping little kids out of the hospital? As the data here is really clear, for every million doses of vaccine administered, we're going to keep about 250 kids out of the hospital. That is terrific. Again, as you're saying, during this latest wave, we saw more of those littles, the zero to four-year-olds being hospitalized on a relative basis compared to prior waves. That was for two reasons. First, Omicron is more transmissible. 
And sec- so more kids were getting infected. And second, we vaccinated so much of the rest of this population. Once we can get vaccines in the arms of little kids, we'll see that number of hospitalizations for zero to four-year-olds drop as well. A Michigan parent of a three-year-old tells CNN, quote, our best, our best pathway to get back to normal is this vaccine, unquote. How soon can parents start taking their kids to crowded indoor play dates without the fear uh, of kids getting really sick? It is so tough to keep these kids masked or following other COVID precautions. The vaccines are really critical to allay that fear. So here's the deal. With the Moderna vaccines, it's about 7 to 14 days after the second dose that your kid will be fully protected. With the Pfizer vaccine, which is, again, three doses at day zero, day 21, and then again about eight weeks after the second dose, it's another seven days. You're going to have to wait much longer for full efficacy if you're getting Pfizer as opposed to Moderna. Shifting the news about COVID in the general population, a new Pfizer study shows the antiviral pill Paxlovid, which is used to treat COVID symptoms, might not be effective in people who are medium or, quote, standard risk. So who should be taking Paxlovid and when? So this is a great example of a study that's not yet ready to change my practice because all I've seen is the press release. And it actually doesn't change my practice. As a doctor, I am prescribing Paxlovid to people who are high risk, people who are older, people who have multiple chronic conditions. And we have a lot of studies from other countries, Hong Kong, Israel, and elsewhere, showing that Paxlovid still has benefit for high risk folks, people who are immunosuppressed, people who have cancer, people who have diabetes, even if they're vaccinated. So the takeaway is if you're older or you've got underlying health problems, as soon as you test positive for COVID, call your doctor or go to an urgent care. Or if you're in a state where pharmacists can prescribe it, go to your pharmacy and get that prescription. The quicker you start taking Paxlovid, the higher the likelihood of it working. Dr. Rani, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, when the price of the story can be your life. We're going to take you to one of the most dangerous places in the world for journalists daring to tell the truth. Stay with us. We turn now to our buried lead. Those are stories we feel are not getting enough attention. Uh, There have been nearly 800 homicides this year in Tijuana, Mexico. 800. And now some of the journalists covering those murders are being killed themselves. CNN's Matt River spent an overnight shift with a crime scene journalist in the city and asks why doing simple reporting in Mexico can be so deadly. Tijuana, Mexico. In a country plagued by homicide, this city stands out. Nearly 800 murders already this year, say state officials, which means the people reporting on those crimes are busy. This we get to see firsthand, meeting up well after dark with freelance journalist Arturo Rosales. It's not long before we're off to what police say is a murder scene. Dangerous neighborhoods like here in Los Alamos, where a body was found left in the street. Arturo gets to work, snapping photos and going live on Facebook. He just describes the basics, time, location, manner of death, in a city like Tijuana, where murders are often linked to organized crime 
even just reporting the facts can be deadly. Margarito Martinez was a well-known crime reporter in the city, a happy guy with a quick wit and a big smile. He was killed outside his home earlier this year. A best friend. He taught me everything I know. Jesus Aguilar is a journalist too, one of Martinez's best friends. They worked together at countless murder scenes, and Aguilar worked at Martinez's too. I had to see it, he says. I had to see it. It's what we do. We cover homicides. Now I witnessed his. Prosecutors detained 10 people for the crime, though none have been formally charged. Authorities say those detained have ties to organized crime, but haven't given an exact motive for the killing. Martinez's death? Tragically, not that unusual in Mexico. 11 journalists have been killed so far this year, according to human rights group Article 19, a number the Mexican government disputes as too high. No solo eso. Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador says his government is committed to protecting journalists. A diferencia de antes... The difference from before, he says, is that in all these homicides, there have already been people detained and there is no impunity. But that is simply not true. The government's own statistics show that more than 90% of crimes in Mexico go unsolved. For Sonia de Anda, herself a Tijuana journalist, it creates a morbid reality. She says whatever threats, obstacles to their work, whoever kills a journalist, there are no consequences because we live in a country of impunity. The Mexican president also routinely attacks journalists he doesn't like as enemies, often claiming coverage that is critical of him is really just an attack on the Mexican people. Critics say comments like those contribute to the violence journalists face. How many journalists have been killed, he says. A whole lot. That's the truth. That uncertainty, the danger surrounding this job, is with Arturo Rosales as he drives around Tijuana each night. He says there's not much confidence in the government because there is no protection. Arriving at our last scene of the night, Arturo goes through the motions, and we find out what happened. The driver of that car right there that's now on its side, he was shot while actually driving the car. That would make this at least the 10th homicide that's been recorded in Tijuana in just the last 24 hours. And Arturo says he'll keep being there to document as many as he can, even though he and all his fellow journalists know that they could go from covering victims to becoming a victim at any moment. And Jake, it's important to note who the journalists are that are facing threats here. It's not international journalists, not nearly as much national journalists here. It is local journalists, people who live in the same communities where they are covering these kinds of violent acts. That's why they face the kinds of threats that they do. They're simply easier victims. They don't make a lot of money. They can't afford protection. And as a result of all this, you are seeing the decimation of critical local news coverage across Mexico, like so many other parts of civil society in this country. A free press in many places has fallen victim to corruption and violence. Jake. All right, Matt Rivers with an important story. Thank you so much. Speaking of murdered journalists, a new honor today for slain Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The city council in Washington, D.C. renamed 
A portion of the street outside the Saudi Arabian embassy, Jamal Khashoggi Way. Khashoggi was brutally killed in October 2018 after visiting the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey. The CIA says Khashoggi was murdered over orders given by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, whom President Biden will be meeting with shortly. Trump advisor and ally Steve Bannon just appeared in court. He talked about the January 6th Select Committee. What did he say? We'll tell you. Stay with us. Our politics lead now. Today, a federal judge refused to throw out charges against former Trump advisor Steve Bannon for contempt of Congress, giving more ammo to the House Select Committee investigating the deadly insurrection. Let's get right to CNN's Sarah Murray, who's live outside the courthouse. Uh, Sarah, what did the D.C. District Court judge have to say? Well, Jake, you know, Steve Bannon has been arguing that he didn't have to show up for his congressional testimony because this committee, this January 6th committee, was improperly created. His subpoena was invalid. And the judge today was just not buying that. The judge said as a matter of law, he could not conclude that this committee was somehow improperly created, that Steve Bannon's subpoena was somehow invalid. That's an important decision. It means the case is not getting tossed out, and it invalidates an argument that a lot of Republicans have made around this committee. Now, the other thing the judge said is that when it came to President Trump, Trump's attorney sending Bannon's attorney a letter saying, you know, where appropriate, you should try to protect some presidential privilege. The judge said this is not some unambiguous assertion. So he was also not going to throw out the indictment on that ground. So what this means is that it paves the way for Steve Bannon to go to trial in this case in July. Bannon's team has made it pretty clear they want this to be a rather large spectacle. They're trying to subpoena all of the lawmakers on the January 6th committee to testify at his trial. It's almost certain those subpoenas are going to get thrown out. But in another interesting detail in court today, they said they also might call one of Donald Trump's attorneys to testify at his trial. Jake? A large spectacle indeed. Sarah Murray, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's discuss. Olivia, on the, on the one hand, there are election deniers like Steve Bannon seeing his day in court for failing to comply with a, a congressional investigation and a subpoena. Then on the other hand, there are election deniers such as Jim Marchant, who finds himself one step closer to a position of power for the next election. Listen to Steve Bannon this morning talking about Jim Marchant. Jim Marchant in, in uh, Nevada, the head of the coalition, he had a blowout win in the primary. MAGA is on the march. The J6 committee is totally irrelevant. So just for folks who don't know, Last night, Jim Marchand, a Trump loyalist, easily won Nevada's Republican nomination for Secretary of State. That means somebody who is against democracy, against elections, uh, could be theoretically in charge of running them if he wins the general election in a what's anticipated to be a good Republican year. Yeah, that's correct. And look, regardless of your political affiliation as an American, this should be extremely alarming. The fact that we're trying to hold someone accountable for what led to January 6th, here's Bannon, right? And then now you have this other person who's gaining power. And there's a lot of individuals like the one in this situation that are, that are running for office currently who stand a likelihood of actually getting into office. And what does this say about the state of our democracy ongoing? That means this threat, this movement that led to January 6th lives on. Yeah, and this is what uh, people like uh, Doug uh, Ludig and, and others uh, have suggested is the real threat. This that 2020 was just um, a practice run. The, yeah, the dress rehearsal for 2024. Here, take a listen. Here are the voices of Jim Marchant, uh, Nevada Secretary of State candidate, 
Adam Laxalt, uh, the Republican Senate candidate in Nevada, and Doug Mastriano, uh, the Republican gubernatorial candidate in Pennsylvania. Take a listen. People are excited that, uh, that there's somebody doing something behind the scenes to try to fix 2020, like President Trump said. Well, there's no question that they rigged the election. There's no question that they said about changing the rules of game of the game. So I'm, I'm thankful that you know that President Trump's loyal to, to those that stand for truth and are trying to fight for voting integrity in our state, which it needs to happen. I can't believe, Steve, that it's so hard to find out what actually happened in 2020. We should also note in New Mexico, the state Supreme Court just ordered a local county commission to certify recent primary results after the commission originally refused to do so, citing distrust of the Dominion voting machines. I mean, the lunatics are taking over the asylum. I mean, that's really something. I, you know, Jake, I think that I, in this instance, I want to point to some of the very strong examples that we had in 2020. Brad Raffensperger down in Georgia really illustrates the importance to people of this kind of a position, right? What happened there was not theoretical. What any one of these people who get elected to office may or may not do once they hold it, we don't know yet. We, we know what they've said. But look what Brad Raffensperger had to do in 2020, take calls from the then president of the United States, defy him, and then publicly stand up for himself at, in the face of threats to himself and his family. That took a lot of courage. And we should note he is a Republican. So it's not as though any Republican holding one of these offices would necessarily go down this road. But I just think it underscores the importance of spotlighting exactly what you're spotlighting today, which is these jobs that seem you know, esoteric and you know, outside of what normal Americans, even voters, uh, would normally worry about, they are that important. So, Naveen, tell me about the Center for American Progress Action Fund's research on how voters perceive the Republican brand, because obviously the effect of people like Bannon on a party that includes people like Mitt Romney and Brad Raffensperger uh, can be profound. Well, I mean, I think voters are, are really ahead of, uh, I think, uh, recognizing that this party has changed. And Steve Bannon actually said it himself. MAGA is now in charge of the Republican Party. They have taken over. And, and there's two really core elements to that that people are seeing, which is at the core of the Republican Party now and MAGA Republicans is this lust for power, this willingness to do anything for power. And I think what's been really powerful about the January 6th committee's work about this, a lot of things, obviously, but one of them is can, drawing a direct line between the big lie, denying the elections, and the violence that that is a clear thread, that the violence on January 6th does not happen were it not for all of these lies about what actually happened. And what's really terrifying is, yes, Brad Rastenberger stood up there, but what's, you know, the leadership of the Republican Party today, Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, where are they? Yeah. They've endorsed, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell endorsed Adam Laxalt. He's out there actually supporting Adam Laxalt as the next senator from Nevada and so it just goes to show you that that is who this party has become at its core. Um, and Abby, meanwhile, Republicans who were part of this sham, part of the insurrection, whether by inspiration or activity, uh, are standing by what they said and did. Um, take a listen to um, Josh Hawley, the Missouri senator who gave the big you know, su- you know, support gesture to the masses as they were convening on the Capitol on January 6th. Manu Raju asked him uh, about it, given the fact that We had all this testimony the other day from people inside the Trump campaign and the Trump administration saying there was nothing to this election fraud nonsense. Manu asked Josh Hawley about that, given that he voted against certifying uh, the electoral votes in Pennsylvania. Take a listen. 
my objection to Pennsylvania, as we've talked about a lot, is by the, based on the fact that they changed the rules in the middle of the voting in multiple different ways. Did you do it again? Yeah, for those reasons. I mean, yeah. but didn't it give Hopefully it'll never happen again. Now, Hawley's objections, he said, were to the way vote by mail and absentee ballots were expanded uh, during COVID, which went through a complete judicial review and legislative process and all that. Uh, and I, I also have to wonder, did I miss Josh Hawley's objection to the seating of the House Republicans from Pennsylvania that were elected on those same ballots or the Pennsylvania straight state treasurer, who's a Republican, or the Pennsylvania auditor general? Or was his objection only to Joe Biden? Is, is that it? The answer is yes. The objection is only to Joe Biden. All of the other Republicans who actually performed better than Trump on the ballot have absolutely no problems with their own elections. Uh, and that's very telling. But I do want people to pay very close attention to what Josh Hawley is doing. You're going to hear the same thing from Senator Ted Cruz and a lot of others. This is going to be uh, the big election lie version two. It's where they try to shift the explanation away from the crazy conspiracy theories to something that sounds a little bit more reasonable. But I think people need to understand that the issues that he is raising there have all, to your point, been adjudicated. Uh, They were either rejected by the courts or the court said, we are not hearing these objections because they're being dealt with at the state level. Republicans in Congress are going to try to change the subject and claim that this is about how the rules were changed during COVID. But those complaints should have been logged, were logged before the election, not after the election. It's really just an effort to obscure that they all are trying to kind of paper over their support for Trump's election lies uh, and, and really deceiving voters. Because at the end of the day, when Trump looks at who he's going to endorse, he wants to know who thinks the election wasn't legitimate. And anybody who agrees with that idea is supporting a, a fallacy that's being debunked as we speak in these hearings. Yeah. And you know who uh, had no problem with the Pennsylvania uh, electoral votes actually being counted? The very conservative Republican senator from Pennsylvania, Pat Toomey, he, who, who you would think if there had been fraud and serious problems that he would have been first in line, very conservative Republican senator, because right. um, he said we should we should know the, people, <laughs> we should. the Republicans who stand <laughs> up for the right he thing. He was yeah. on you know Sunday shows early uh, early uh, in in twenty twenty one after as as you know this was all still kind of unfolding and ongoing. It might have it might have been right after January sixth. In fact, if I got the date wrong, calling it the big lie. Right? Yeah. He as a Republican used that phrase. I mean, we sh- we should remember that too. I mean, sometimes we get yes, many of Dem- many Democrats have wanted wanted to use that, but it's not strictly a Democratic phrase. And those Republicans so, are not long for this world, by yeah, the way. Yes, that's true. It's tiring. Congressman Price in uh, in uh, North Carolina exactly. or South right. Carolina was yeah. it? Uh, uh, South uh, South, South Carolina. Carolina. Right. Rice. Yeah. lost. Yeah. He voted yeah. for impeachment. But even in Pennsylvania, the thing that's so frustrating with Holly's comments is it was actually a bipartisan bill passed in 2019 that expanded voting. I mean, right. that, it, was, it wasn't a controversial thing. Republicans controlled the state legislature. They passed this. And the adjustments that were made were adjustments that were happening all over the country because of COVID. Yeah, yeah so but let's totally... be real about, like, what Josh Hawley's deal is, right? He's running for president of right. the United States. Like, they all are. That's why they talk this way. I just want to quickly ask Olivia, who used to be a Homeland Security Advisor to Vice President Pence, we're going to hear in, uh, I think it's the next hearing or perhaps the one after that, about the pressure put on Vice President Pence by President Trump and the others around. What, what are you hoping to learn from that? Like, I think it's important to really get the facts out there about what really happened, the amount of pressure and the extent of the pressure on the vice president and the fact that he held to his oath, you know, to the Constitution and carried out his duty honorably. But I am very interested to hear Greg Jacob, in his own words, 
say what really happened, the extent of it. And I, you know, I've worked very closely with Greg. His integrity is is unwavering, and I am very grateful for that. And I'm I'm actually glad that Mike Pence had someone like that in his corner, given all the dynamics and the bullying that was going on. I think it'll be important. I saw that Mark Short will also be featured as part of the hearing. I mean, these are the people who were in there in the moment facing what was happening, the internal dynamics. And I think it's important for Americans to hear the entire narrative from beginning to end on what happened, how it was carried out, and what the Pence team did internally to figure out how they were going to navigate the situation to get him safely to the Capitol and get him to honor his oath. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Looks like Pence is a good hirer. Right. If, well, I'll I would say think you so. don't have to. You don't have to say so. Thanks, one and all. We appreciate it. Two police officers are killed on the job. The mayor now says they were essentially ambushed. Stay with us. In our national lead now, two police officers in Los Angeles County are dead after being ambushed while responding to reports of a possible stabbing at a motel. Authorities say the suspect shot one officer inside a room before fleeing to the parking area where he shot another officer. Both were taken to the hospital where they were pronounced dead of their injury. CNN's Adrian Broaddus is live for us in Los Angeles. Adrian, what more are you learning about this tragedy? Jake, a source with the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office tells us the suspect, who is now deceased, was out on probation for a felony firearms charge when this shooting happened. Investigators told us those officers initially responded to a call for a potential stabbing. When they encountered the suspect in a motel room, that's when the officer-involved shooting occurred, according to police. And the suspect took off fled to a parking lot. That's where another shooting happened. These officers were beloved by the community. Listen in. Uh, Men and women of El Monte Police Department, as well as the community of El Monte, is grieving. I've heard that the only way to take the sting out of death is to take the love out of life. And believe me, they were loved. These two men were loved. They were good men. Always willing to help anybody. He put everyone before him. Um, Didn't matter what was going on. He would go on ahead and put himself in the line of fire. And that last person you heard from said she worked with Officer Joseph Santana, who recently joined the El Monte Police Department. He started his law enforcement career at a neighboring sheriff's department, but he returned home because he wanted to serve and support the community where he grew up. His colleague who was with him that day was Corporal Michael Paredes. He had been with the department for 22 years. Both of these officers leave behind a family. Both were married and both had children. Jake. Adrian Broaddus in Los Angeles, thank you so much. The Tesla feature the federal government says has caused 273 crashes in less than a year. Stay with us. In our money lead now, bad news for the world's richest man, Elon Musk. Tesla cars got into 273 crashes in a span of nine months while using its full self-driving or autopilot software. That's according to new federal government data released today, showing the real-world performance of these futuristic features from automakers. Overall, Tesla was responsible for about 70% of the 392 driver-assist-involved crashes between July 1st of last year and May 15th of this year. 
Elon Musk has previously described autopilot technology as unequivocally safer than normal driving. One footnote, federal officials are advising caution before drawing conclusions based on this data. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. We actually read them. And if you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you know what you can do? You can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. All two hours, sitting right there like a, like a beckoning swimming pool. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I will see you tomorrow. <laughs>